Father, we are grateful for your word. Um, anytime we open it, anytime we study it, anytime we read it, anytime we talk about it, we should always ask you for divine help. Um, we don't want to um, say things about you and your word that are not true or are not faithful to the text. And so uh, I have the privilege for the next few minutes here to um, talk about this text of Scripture and some of the things you've been teaching me on it. And I pray that you'll be faithful to the text of Scripture. I pray that it be clear. I pray that it be honoring to you and uh, that you would use it for your namesake and for your glory and for your honor. And God, uh, we are uh, people who have a lot of things that are uh, vying for our attention and our thoughts and our affections and cares. And so I pray that for the next few minutes, we'd be able to focus completely on you and your word, and that your spirit would, uh, would teach us from this text. And we want this for your namesake and for your glory and for your honor. God, there's uh, no amount of any other uh, um, preparation can uh, to make it possible for uh, life's lives to be changed by your word. That's, that's something your spirit has to do. And we recognize that, and that's what we're asking for. And we're grateful that we can gather around your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. There is uh, always a debate in sports about who is the greatest of all time, so to speak. Um, so... Uh, probably 49 out of the 50 states would say Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback ever. You can decide who that 50th state is that doesn't believe that. Um, but, uh, or the, the debate between who the greatest basketball player is, you know, Michael Jordan, some people say LeBron James. I'll end that debate today, and it's not LeBron James. Um, so, you know, there's always these debates about what's the greatest, okay, of all time and things like this. We're going to be looking at a text of Scripture here where there's a question that's given to Jesus that's not as easy as a debate about who the best quarterback is or who the best basketball player is, okay? Let's read the text. This is verse 28. Um, Jesus has been in the temple. He's, he's uh, had his entrance into Jerusalem, and now he's been uh, interacting with different groups. Different groups have been coming up to try to test him, to try to, to discredit him, if you will, as Pharisees, and then as the Sadducees, and we had some scribes and things. And so we have a scribe here um, who's also known as, a, they're also called lawyers, if you will. They were just experts in the law, okay? Not in, in the terms of law like you and I would think in terms of lawyers, but just in the expert in the biblical law, what we read earlier in, in Deuteronomy and things like that. In verse 28, it says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, okay? And so he's talking about the, the Sadducees disputing with Jesus here. And he heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he has a question for himself here. And he says, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, he says, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. 
And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I said just a second ago that this question that was posed to Jesus, and, and if you read Matthew's account of this, uh, this, this uh, story, what happened there, you would see that it says that they, they came up to test Jesus in this. But when you read this, it doesn't feel like the scribe was really trying to test him. Here's what I think happened. I think that there was a group of scribes that were talking, they were listening to Jesus interact with the Sadducees, and they said, we need to come up with our own question to stump him. And so he, this one man, I don't know his name, this one lawyer, this one scribe, takes upon himself to say, well, you know what? I have a question for him. Let me, let me see what he does with this. And when Jesus responds in a way, in a way that he probably was already struggling with a little bit, um, you, you know, it, 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 was, it was amazing to this man. So I don't think it was as hostile as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But still, it was a question designed to test Jesus. Now, it was a difficult question to answer because there were 613 commandments that everyone was supposed to obey, that the Jews were supposed to obey at this time. So 613, they had them listed out. They had laws for everything. They had rules for everything in different categories even. And so this one thing was that they understood, look, no one can keep them all. No one can do all this perfectly. So there became a debate in the day over which is the most important ones to keep. Okay, so, so if, if we recognize we can't keep all 613, but which of the ones are the, the, the key ones, the ones that we have to center in on? And we do this today, do we not? For those of you who have remember in the classroom, you know, JP is a teacher here. How many times have your students asked you, okay, what, what do we need to know for the test, right? Okay, okay, so you students, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You've got all this information that's been given to you, and you've had teachers lecture you and give you things to read and all this stuff, and you're thinking about one thing only. What do I have to know to pass the class, right? Okay, and so this is exactly what they're talking about here. They're saying, say, okay, which is the most important one? Now, out of 613, that was a tall order. But the way Jesus explains this greatest commandment is, is great. And we need, to, we need to look to that. So we're going to explore that today. And so we're going to look at it from four different angles today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the foundation of the greatest commandment. We're going to look at the extent of the greatest commandment. We're going to look at the test of the greatest commandment. And then we're going to look at the importance of it. So foundation, extent, uh, test and importance. That's where we're going to go this morning here. So first of all, the foundation of the greatest commandment here. Now, it's interesting to me that when Jesus answers this question here, that he doesn't, um, uh, uh, he doesn't actually answer the question the way that you would think he would answer. He doesn't answer with a commandment right away. Actually, he begins with a theological statement. Did you notice that? That, that when he says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, here it is. Here is Israel that the Lord God is one. That's a theological statement that he makes there. And that's the answer to the question that was given there, that was posed to him what the greatest commandment was. 
And so he doesn't like totally answer the question correctly in the beginning with because he wants to show that there's a theological understanding that you have to have in order to understand the commandments. This statement, this theological statement is, is crucial because it talks about the exclusivity of God. It wasn't too long ago, it was just a few weeks ago, I was in the community and I was at an appointment, and uh, I was interacting with someone, and, and uh, it's always interesting if when, when people ask me what I do for a living, I always try to like, you know, hide that as long as I can, okay? And it's not because I'm ashamed to be a pastor. I'm really not, okay? But here, because it just changes everything immediately. It's almost humorous. So you'll talk to someone, you're talking everything, and they're talking, and I'm talking everything. And then they say, well, what do you do for a living? And uh, then I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. You know, and then it's like you can just see the the rewinding everything they just said, and then I often get, well, man, I probably shouldn't have said that word, or you know, I shouldn't, and I always come back, well, I've heard them before, you know, uh, or uh, well, I probably said, you know, it's almost like I become their conscience, you know, and it just totally changes the the, the dynamic of the conversation, and so so uh, so I actually try to, to to stay away from that, but anyway, so this this man that I was talking with, he asked me, what do I do for a living, and so I told him, so well, you know, I'm a pastor in town, and and uh, he says, oh. So he began to talk to me about religion and things like that, and it was a good conversation. But he kept saying, he says, look, here's the deal. He goes, I don't consider myself religious. I do believe that there's a God. He says, but I kind of think that, you know, it really doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter really who you pray to. It doesn't matter what book you follow. As long as you're trying to get to be with God at the end. I think that's really the only thing that matters. What do you think? Well, <laughs> since you asked, okay, and so it was very good conversation, very kind. I just said, I said, well, you know, I can understand why that would be appealing. I understand that we want our own individual way to follow God. I understand that, but we have to understand when Jesus said something, he said something in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I said, that does not sound very inclusive. In fact, it sounds very exclusive. He's like, well, yeah, I know, but, you know. And so, we, we, and of course, the conversation didn't end with, you know, great conversions or anything like that. But it was a, it was a good conversation to show him that the Lord is one. That God is one. And this is the theological statement that Jesus begins with. He says, look, you're not going to understand any of the greatest commandments. Look, you're trying to figure out what is important for the test. He says, you're not going to understand how to have these commandments or how to live out these commandments until you understand the theological truth that God is one and that he has an exclusive God and we follow him. And so here's the application we can make from this is that every action we take is based upon a belief we embrace. Every action that we do is based upon some type of belief that we embrace. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. He says, before we get into all this idea of what you need to be doing in order to make sure that, that you can have eternal life, you need to understand some things about God first. And so every action that we take is based upon a theological truth or some type of belief that we embrace. And so this is why it's so important for you and I to know what we believe and know why we believe it. 
Because it informs our theological statement of whatever that is. And, and, and you may say, well, I don't have a theological statement. Well, it may not be written down, but all of us hold dear things that we believe about God. And, we, and, it, and that does shape how we live our lives, whether we consciously recognize it or not. And so, before we get into this idea of what you should be doing and commandments you should be following, we have to be clear on what we believe about God. And so, we had the Lord's Supper just a few minutes ago. I was asking for things that you believe about God or, or that we need to remember about God. And, and it, was, it was good to hear that. It was really good. And in fact, in one time, I actually asked, well, do you really believe that? Because it's easy for us to have the list of things about God that we know are supposed to be true. But whether or not we actually believe them is a whole nother matter. And so what we need to do is that we need to make sure that when we are living this life, it is based upon what we know to be true of God based on the word of God. So there's the foundation. It's a theological statement. What about the extent of this greatest commandment? Jesus then, he says, he quotes back, and he is quoting back in Deuteronomy like I, I, I read earlier in the service. But it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so these are four words that Jesus is using here, and he actually adds one from Deuteronomy, from Moses. And basically what he's doing here is he's, he's saying that this is going to describe the whole person. And there's going to be some overlap here, and, and I'm going to explain those four really, really briefly. But, uh, but, but it's important to understand that there is an overlap in these, okay? So it's not like four distinct categories, but yet it is helpful to think about it in four different ways. Okay, And so when he talks about loving God with all of our heart, he's talking about our emotions there. He's talking about the, I, I think, he's talking about the idea of, of our feelings and things like that, of, of what it is. And, you know, in, in, in our circles, it's often, emotions are often downplayed, okay? Because we're afraid of them a lot of times. Uh, we're afraid that we're going to be considered like another type of 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 uh, belief system, whatever, that is driven by emotion and not necessarily uh, propositional truth. And so we've become so centered on propositional truth that we want to downplay emotions a little bit. But the, idea, but the reality is, is that God created all of us to have emotions. And the reality is that when we see how we are to worship God, emotions should be involved in that. Now, it shouldn't be driven by our emotions, but our emotions should be involved in that. And so we should love God, and there should be emotions involved with that. He says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul. This is the idea of the spirit. This is the idea of your self-awareness of who you are as a person. And he says, you know, your inner being, if you will, that should be love God. It should be devoted to God. So your emotions, your inner being. He talks about the mind there. He talks about the idea of intelligence or intellect. God never asks us to believe something that... Um, that with, without our minds. He never asks us to, to not wrestle with things intellectually. He doesn't ask us to, just to ignore intellectual difficulties when it comes to following the scriptures. And there are some intellectual difficulties. There are some things that, that the Bible talks about that have happened, that are miraculous, that, that are hard to get our mind around. But the reality of the gospel, the gospel message of how that we are to be saved from our sins and how that we need a Savior from our sins, that is all very much so intellectual. 
that we have to understand. Now, I told you just a second ago, in our circles, a lot of times we tend to focus more on that than we do the emotions. And other circles tend to focus more on the emotions than the intellect. God is saying that we need to have all of this. And then the last thing is our strength. That's the idea of will. Because, or or, uh, um, our purpose, our will. Because the idea is is that we need to make sure that every day that we are uh, willfully following Christ. Because some days are easier than others, are they not? Some days it is much easier to believe things about God than other days. And some days it's much easier to obey God in some areas than other days. Some days you want to read the scriptures and other days you don't. Some of those times it's we just have to have believe God, love God with our will. Now, I've found that the times that I have extra time, or to put it this way, the times when I don't have time, when I'm really pressed in my schedule, I have a greater desire to be still and read my Bible. But when I have time, I find a lesser desire to be still and read my Bible. And this is a, a challenge of our sin nature and of temptation that comes our way. And so we need to follow God with our will. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the extent of this great commandment is that it needs to affect every area of our lives. And so as we follow Christ, as we follow God, it needs to affect every area of our lives. We should engage our whole person in that. And the reason why we do this is because Jesus did that for us. And so I put this on the screen that if Jesus engaged his whole person for our benefit, we should engage our whole person for Jesus' honor. Jesus, he gave his spirit. He gave his emotions. I mean, there were times where he would come to Jerusalem and he would look at Jerusalem and he would weep over Jerusalem, right? And, and we talked about earlier of how that, that uh, in, in the temple when he got the, the, the he made the whip and he was, he was casting people out and driving people out of the temple. There was emotion involved in that. And there was times where the, the, uh, he says, how long do I have to be with you people? There was there was frustration there, but out of his will to serve the Father, a will to be obedient to the Father, he kept being obedient. His whole inner being was about loving the Father. He says, my food, the things that give me nourishment, is to do the will of the Father. So Jesus gave his entire person to following the will of God for our benefit. We should be willing to give every aspect of our lives for Christ's honor. And so this commandment that Jesus is talking through here, the greatest commandment here, it has the foundation of a theological truth that God is one. It's an exclusive God. Then we also have this extent where it extends to the entire person. I mentioned, though, that there was a test. And this is where we find in, uh, in verse 31 when Jesus gives extra credit here. Because the man asks, he says, what's the greatest commandment? Singular. And Jesus, is, first of all, he gives a theological statement to start with. Then he gives a command. And so the person is supposed to, you, the person asking the question is probably thinking, okay, you know, uh, we're done here and, and continue on the conversation. But then Jesus says, but the second is likened to it. And so it's almost like that bonus feature on the, on the Blu-ray, the DVD, you know, that you watch. It's like, oh, we got a bonus feature here. We got a second one here. And so he goes into the second one. Now, but why does he do this? 
And it, why does he go into a whole second one and bring up about loving um, our, our neighbors ourselves? Well, here's the reason why. is because you cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And so the first commandment makes the second commandment possible. But the second commandment proves that the first one is in existence. Okay, so the first commandment makes the second one possible. The second one proves the first commandment. Because this is how we know that we love God, is when we love other people. This is how we know that we have a love for God, is that when we show kindness and care, and we are actually concerned for other people. So the reality is, is that if you don't love people, you don't love God. Now, that's a bold statement. That is, that is a bold statement that if I say, if you don't love people, you don't love God. That is saying, now, wait a minute here. You don't know some of the people in my life, Jeremy, all right? Now, I don't know everyone in your life, but I do know that there are difficult people in this world. And we don't love everyone in the same way. I understand that. And loving someone doesn't always mean affirming everything they do. That's a common misunderstanding in today's culture, that in order to love someone, you have to affirm every decision that they make, and that is incorrect. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is tell someone when they're wrong, graciously, of course. But no, we, we love our children. For those of us who are parents, we love our children like our next breath, and, and we would take a bullet for our children, but we don't affirm every one of their decisions, nor should we. And so the statement, though, is still bold, though, that if we don't love people, we don't love God. Where do I get that from? Well, this text, but First John. First John chapter 4 says in verse 20, verse 21, uh, you can just write the reference down. I didn't put it on the screen. It says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Did you catch that? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Because this is why Jesus gives the second commandment right here. He says, listen, how do you know? How do you know if you love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you know that? Well, you know that in how you treat other people. You know that in how that you are uh, uh, showing kindness and love towards other people. Because all of them are born in the image of God. It's easy to love a God who claims to be always willing to forgive us. And it's easy to say that we love a God who says that he will provide our needs. And it's easy to say that we'll love a God who will say that he cares for us and loves us and knows us. But true love is difficult. And we all know that for anyone who's been in any type of relationship, you know that love can be difficult. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He says, here's how you know that God has transformed you. The love of God has transformed your heart is when you love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says. So, as much as you love yourself, love your neighbor. And we all love ourselves. Great. Even the most depressed of us who deal with depression and deal with low moments, we still love ourselves more than anyone else. And that's often the reason why we're depressed is because we're more concerned about our own circumstances than anyone else. And so the point is this. The point is, is that if we don't love people... We don't love God. And this is difficult, I understand. I read a story this week about a man by the name of David Braun. The year was 1938, and he was in a Russian prison. 
He was with a whole bunch of people that they were, according to the, the story that I read, there were 250 people in the small prison uh, in Russia. There was a Greek Orthodox priest that was put into prison, uh, and his only crime was uh, proclaiming the gospel. And he had a joy about him that um, everyone recognized and everyone saw, and it was confusing to some people, and particularly to two other prisoners, it was uh, grounds for mocking. These two prisoners, they made it their, their goal to unsettle this man's joy. They didn't like the idea that this man could have joy in these bad circumstances when they were uh, having terrible uh, circumstances along with them. And so they would, they would bump into him and they would, they would uh, knock down any books that he had that he would be reading. They would uh, steal things from this Greek Orthodox um, uh, priest. And these two people, these two other prisoners, everyone knew that it was them. And they were the ones that were, uh, they had it out for this priest. David Braun writes, he says that one day his wife sent him a package. And as David opened the package, there was food inside. And of course, you can imagine 1938 in, in a Russian prison, there probably wasn't a whole lot of food going around. And, and uh, uh, as David began to open up this package and, and he saw a, a small loaf of bread in there, he saw the, the Greek Orthodox priest looking at him with hunger and longing eyes. So David decided to be kind to him, broke it, and gave it to the priest. Now, to David's amazement, what David did then is he broke that piece into two and went over to his tormentors, those other two prisoners, and he gave each of them the bread. And he walked away, and David goes up to the priest and says, why did you do that? You're hungry. You're tired. You're you're in terrible circumstances just like us. Why would you do it? These people, they don't care about you. They've They've been terrible to you. Why would you do this? And the priest responded. He says, very soon, I will be in heaven. They don't have that assurance. Let them have this, and let them know of God's kindness and love. You see, I'm sure I would disagree on a lot of things with that Greek Orthodox priest if we got into theological debates. But one thing he and I are lockstep in is that we are to love even the most unlovable. I, it was in the news not too long ago, just this last week, I think it was. It's like, I think it was this last week. I think it was last Sunday. American forces took out a top terrorist. I mean, the name's escaping me, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, and, um, you know, this is one that he's been a terrible man and terrible terrorist. And in fact, even in his last moments of death, as apparently he was running down a, a, a tunnel, he dragged three of his children with him and detonated his vest and took three children with him. Terrible man. Now, I'm glad that justice was served. I'm glad that uh, we have military and we have police that God has given authority to, according to Romans 13, to bear the sword, to execute justice. I'm glad that justice was served. But I got to admit, when I heard that this man died, my heart sunk. Because I have no reason to believe that this man turned to Christ. Now, it's 
Sometimes in our American nationalism and our love for country, we want the terrorists to pay for what they've done. I understand that. But you've got to remember that these are souls. You have to remember that these are people whom God created. You've got to remember that these are people whom God has shown some measure of love towards. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a military. I'm not saying that we shouldn't execute justice. Justice needed to be served, and I'm glad it was. But we should not be celebrating the death of someone who's most likely in hell. Because we need to have a love for other people. We have a love for people, and that doesn't mean we shy away from justice. It doesn't mean we shy away from our military doing what they should do. And so please don't misunderstand my point. But we should not be so glad that that person is killed that we forget that it's a soul most likely in eternity in hell. For those of us who know Christ and the beauty of Christ and the love of Christ, we should not want that just to be our own experience. That should not be something that we just want for ourselves. It should be something we want for everyone, even the most worthless of sinners. Because the Bible is very clear with examples of terrorists who turn to Christ. You ever hear about a man by the name of Simon the Zealot in the New Testament? The Zealots were terrorists. They were terrorists. And yet, one of Jesus' disciples was a former terrorist. You see, my point isn't that, that we become soft on law and soft on, on executing justice. That's not my point. But my point is that we need to understand that these are people's lives and souls, and we need to have a love for them. You see, the, the test of our love for God is whether or not we see people as image bearers and whether or not we want them to follow Christ and know Christ like we know Christ. Think of Stephen. Think of Jesus. Stephen, at his death, what did he say? His people were casting stones at him. He says, don't lay the sin on their charge. He's just basically saying, please forgive them. May they find a path of forgiveness. May they find a way that this is not going to condemn them. Jesus, hanging on the cross, tell out to the Father. He says, Father, may, they, may you forgive them. May you show them your love and grace. Because this is the reason why he was stretching out his arms on the cross. And so if Jesus, if Simon, or excuse me, Stephen, if these are people who understood this, this is, those are the examples that we must follow. So the greatest commandment, it has, it has a foundation of a theological statement. It has the extent of our entire personhood. But then it also has a test of how we are showing love towards other people. But then there's also the importance. Here's the importance. The scribe says to him, he says, you said right about this. And he talks about how this is a good thing. He talks about how this is good. And then he says this as a statement. He says, and this is in the end of verse 33. He says, this is to love one's neighbor as oneself, to love God with all your heart, to love one's neighbor as yourself. This is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that is a very powerful statement for this scribe to make. Because what the scribe was saying, he's saying what, to love God supremely and to love your neighbor yourself, that is better, that is more important, that is more uh, significant and of greater importance than the whole sacrificial system. And what he was saying there is he says the whole burnt offerings. Though, you remember, there were different kinds of offerings in, in the Old Testament. There was grain offerings and there were some burnt offerings. And then there was a couple different kinds of the burnt offerings where they, they would 
sacrifice uh, a, an animal to the Lord. And sometimes that would be part of that they would eat. And so it would be part of their provision. It would be a worship meal. And so it would be given in honor of God. But then the people would eat of some of that. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the other kind where the entire burnt offering was given to God. It was totally given to God. No human was going to partake of it. There would be no participation. It was just going to be 100% given to God. This scribe is saying, what you have just said, Jesus, is more important than all of those things. Everything that was totally given to God, all that sacrificial system, system, this is much more important. This man, he had an understanding. God was bringing him to himself. And it is much more important than anything because the reason why is the heart is always the goal. This is why David, when he was, when he was writing his repentance psalm in Psalm 51, he had committed a great sin, and it was brought to his attention, and he was repenting of it. And as a, as a fruit of that repentance, what he was doing is he was, and that word repent means the, the turn and the change. And, and so it, what he was doing, he was just writing, writing out a song that we have recorded in our Bibles of Psalm 51. And he says this, he says, you do not desire sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. But a broken and contrite heart, that is what you will not despise. You see, David, living under the sacrificial system, I might add, during that time, understood that that was temporary, understood that that wasn't the the main goal. The main goal was a heart that was given over to God. And so the importance of these commandments is that it talks about our entire person, and it has a ramification of getting at what is most important to God, and that is our whole being given to him. And he says here, the reason why it's also important is that Jesus says to him, he says this kind of curious statement. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by you're not far? I mean, you're close, but not quite there. What do you mean by that? Well, my only way to answer that question is I think that there was something that was missing in this person, uh, in this scribe's theology, and uh, he was on the journey, no doubt. I suspect we'll see him in heaven. I can't prove that. Um, but I think he was very close to understanding this. And I think that the reason why we're not given the answer is to cause us to reflect upon this. But in Mark chapter 1, it talks about John the Baptist in verse 14. It says, um, after John was arrested, and then Jesus came into Galilee, and Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. And this is what he said. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says this, repent and believe in the gospel. In chapter four, we see also that, this, that Jesus was talking about how that we need to repent um, uh, and that was the message that he was giving here. So I believe the reason why that Jesus says here, says you're close to the kingdom, is because this person, he understood theological truth, he understood the importance of it, but now it had to move and morph into life change and repentance. Now, again, I just want to say, when you hear the word repent, you know, don't think of like the, the preacher scene from the old Disney movie, Pollyanna. Do you remember that old movie? Remember that old movie? I remember watching it as a kid, and you know, if, if you, you, you can look it up, there's a scene where, where she's sitting in the church service, and the guy comes on, the, the preacher comes on a scene, and the first words out of his mouth are, death comes unexpectedly. 
And he's like yelling, and those chandeliers are shaking, you know, and everything. And he's talking about repent, and he's talking about how that you will burn and all this stuff. Okay, okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, when I'm talking about repent here, I want you to get in your mind of this idea of that we recognize our condition before God, and we turn away from that our sin, and we follow God. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, we're talking about this idea of how that we need to recognize that, okay, this is something that is theologically true, but instead of just making the check mark of, okay, I can accept that, we let it change our lives. And, and then it begins to turn our whole position. It turns our life choices. It turns how we spend our time. It turns our affections. It turns all those things. That's what we're talking about here. And so right now, this man, this young scribe, he hadn't had that yet. And so that's why Jesus says, hey, you are so close. You're understanding this. You're agreeing with this. You are so close. He says, I just want you to turn to it. I just want you to turn now. I want you to turn and follow me. A willingness and a desire to change. But some people, they never get past this spot. Some people are so close, but they never turn. They never change. And it is so tragic. I was reading about um, a man by the name of Lord Kenneth Clark. He was Great Britain's, uh, one of uh, Great Britain's most prominent art uh, historians and author. He produces television shows and things like that. And he's, he wrote this about himself. He was, at one time, uh, Clark was living in France uh, for a short time, and, and he wrote this about an experience he had. He says this. He says, I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but it did not seem to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I'd ever experienced before. That state of mind, it lasted for several minutes. But wonderful as it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless, I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad, and perhaps after all, it was a delusion, for I was in a very, in every way, unworthy of such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no attempt or no, no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I had felt the finger of God, quite sure. And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. Isn't that one of the saddest things you've heard? Someone who, who they, they, they get the sense that God is pressing upon their life, but they turn away from it. You see, the importance of the great commandment here is that it brings us up to that point. It brings us to the point where we can check the boxes and it brings us to where we can have the correct theological statements, but it takes us turning to Christ. It takes us following him to know eternal life. And so the application for this is that it is possible to agree with Jesus and still not be part of his family. That's sad to me. 
And so if, if you're here today and you're on that edge, I mean, if, 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 if you're trying to figure this thing out here, and maybe there's some things that I'm saying all throughout the sermon, you've been checking the box and you've been saying, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, here's my point to you is that, yes, it's good that we're agreed on these things, but you have to give your life to Christ. You have to turn and follow him, okay? Because it's possible to have a, a theological agreement, but yet still not be part of God's family. So let me encourage you, follow Christ. Follow Christ. You know, this lawyer's question is very instructive to us this morning. If we love God, the rest will fall into place, honestly. If we love God and give our lives to him supremely, then all of our affections and all of our life decisions, they, it, it will fall into place. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. I'm not going to say we're always going to make the right decisions. I'm not promising you a life of comfort and ease. But what I am promising you, promising you is that everything will have purpose and that you will have direction in life. And so what we need really is we need an epidemic of a love for God. Now, that word epidemic is often used in a negative sense, and we think of like diseases and sicknesses as epidemics, but if you think about what an epidemic is, it starts with one person. It starts with one person who gets sick, and maybe it's Ebola or something like that, and then all of a sudden, it just spreads, right? Okay? Now, the term doesn't have to be used in a negative sense. We can use it in a positive sense. If we have one or two people, and this is what our church needs, we need, we need some people just to say, yeah, I'm following Christ no matter what. You know, I, I'm, I'm loving Christ with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. And, the, and what we see when we see that is then that it affects other people. And this is why we have small groups, and so that we can stoke those relationships. And this is the reason why we have people come together on Sundays, and so, so we can proclaim this message. And so what we need is we need people just to say, that's me. That's me. And when we do that, we'll just see one person affect another. I, I read a story, and, 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 you know, about uh, how uh, shoes, the hush puppy shoes, it was, it was going bankrupt. And, and uh, uh, the, the company that was making the shoes, they were, they were going to be uh, phasing them out until they heard of, like, one designer who, who understood that there were some people in, in the clubs in New York that were, that, that were buying these, just some young kids that were buying these shoes. And so he talked to the makers of it. And he says, hey, you should make some more of this and market it down there. And, and they did, and it became this, this billion-dollar uh, sale and, and things for the company. They were going to phase it out. But what was it? It was just a couple kids. A couple kids started wearing these shoes. And more and more, it got the attention of fashion designers. And pretty soon, now instead of being able to buy them for 30 bucks, you have to pay you know, $200 for them now. Same shoe. What's the difference? Is that some people decided to go against the current. And people decided to do what they thought was right. Now, I'm not talking about shoes here. I don't care what shoes you wear. What I am talking about is following Christ. I care about that. And the more we follow Christ, the more we, we, we seek to obey this commandment of love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the more we're going to influence other people, and the more we're going to see God get the honor that he so richly deserves. So who's going to be the tipping point here? That's the question. Let me give you some homework, and then we'll bring this to a close. Here's some things that I'd encourage you to think about. How would I summarize what I know to be true of God? Okay, so we're asking for a summary statement here. Take a bit, you know, if you need to summarize some things that you knew about God, it might be a good exercise for you just to try to write them in two or three sentences and just write it down. I know we're not going to be able to contain God in two or three sentences, but it will, it will cause us to evaluate what we consider most dear about God. Number two, 
Am I striving to love God with my whole person, or am I neglecting an area of heart, soul, mind, or strength? So maybe, maybe some of us are more intellectual in the room, and so you, uh, you, you think, okay, um, uh, you, you can you know, love God more in an academic sense. And maybe some of us are more emotional in this room. We think, well, you know, I just want to feel this about God. Well, that's good, and both are good, but, but we need to have the whole range of person. And then, here's a question, and you don't have to answer this out loud (laughs) or in an email or anything, but who is the most difficult person for me to love? Now, some of you have a name right away just popped in your mind. Just right away popped in your mind. Make that someone that you pray for. Make that someone that when you read Mark 12, that you seek to love them. Now, let me just say a word of this now. I'm going to close it, is that doesn't mean that the relationship is going to be restored. If they haven't repented of a sin against you, there can't be forgiveness. But you can still show love in your heart towards that person. And if you have more questions about what that looks like, I'd love to talk to you about that. So there's some homework for us to consider. Let's pray. Father, our time is gone. I I pray that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that we love our neighbors ourselves. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today, that they're, they're there, they're close to the kingdom. I pray that you would give them a spirit of repentance. And, and, and we think of that as such a negative word, but it's a turning, it's a change. It's a way of following you, a willingness to follow you. That's all you're asking. And so that's what I pray you give them today. Father, may we love you supremely because you are worthy of it. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.